Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross, that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit, that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know thee to the knowledge and love of thee. For the honor of your name. Amen. Please be seated. All right. Good morning, everyone. Today we are going to talk about the Holy Catholic Church. Um, this is often a surprise to some people because they say, what? Catholic? What? <laughs> and uh, you Anglicans talk about being the Holy Catholic Church? Yes, emphatically so. Um, and I'll just give you a little bit of an introduction to this. We're going to say more about it as time goes on. But the, that, that old Greek word, that old Greek word, that old Greek word, a Catholic, simply means whole. Um, and it was a word which was meant in the ancient church to, dis- to distinguish those who held to the whole faith from those who didn't. Okay, so you have those who hold to the whole faith as it had been received from the apostles on down through the centuries from those who, what? Held to their own opinions, yes? Uh, and these we call heretics. The, 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 they're, you know, and by the way, heretic is not like a word of, of uh, condescension or denigration. It's, it's just simply the fact, right? If you dissent from the Catholic faith um, as delivered, um, you are by definition a heretic. That's, that's the very simple way to put it. Um, except, so most, most Christians today don't use the word Catholic at all, or most evangelical Christians don't use the word Catholic, uh, because that has come to mean Roman Catholic. Um, and uh, the quite simple way to put it is that we Anglicans believe that um, we are Catholic Christians in the full sense of the word. Um, and uh, though that, uh, and I would say probably one of the best ways to put it is that we are, we are reformed in, in the best sense of the word. Uh, reformed in that Catholic faith. Um, by the way, this is very important. Um, the reformers all understood that what they were doing and the, the nature of the project was that they were going back to that ancient Catholic church. They're going back to the sources to find what's there. Um, and they're digging it back up to say, if we're going to get things right, where are we going to find it? In antiquity. We're going to find it in what was done way on back. Um, so there's a bit of an introduction. We'll say more about it as time goes on. Question 89 on page 55. What is the church? The church is the whole community of faithful Christians in heaven and on earth. The church on earth gathers in local congregations to worship in word and sacrament, to serve God according to the scriptures, and to proclaim the gospel under the leadership of those whom God appoints for this purpose. Okay, first bit. The church is the whole community of faithful Christians in heaven and on earth. So the church actually has a dual identity, if you want to put it quite simply. Uh, Both, and in, in fact encompasses both the living and the dead in Christ. Um, so this is a, a bit of a novel feature to some people. They say, well, I thought the church was just those people who happened to be alive. No. Uh, the church encompasses all those um, who, have, who have died, or the faithful departed and the living. The church on earth gathers in local congregations, like this one, uh, to worship in word and sacrament. We'll say more about that in the future. Um, but essentially the, the introduction is that... Uh, Christian worship uh, always has this sort of dual character of both being reflective of the word of God written and also um, having the sacrament, this sacramental life, um, whereby uh, we first, well, we receive the Eucharist, right? Um, We baptize. 
to serve God according to the scriptures and to proclaim the gospel under the leadership of those whom God appoints for this purpose. Um, so there's, there's a sense, of course, we get this from scripture, right? That local leadership in the church will always be appointed and will always be there. Uh, as, as much as, uh, some people may try to have these kind of, uh, flat, uh, church structures, um, you know, it never quite works out. In fact, uh, several weeks ago, I was hanging out drinking beer with some Quakers, right? And Quakers, by the way, are not supposed to have pastors by design. Um, they're supposed to have, uh, just this very flat structure. If you go to a, a really real deal. Quaker meeting house. Do you know how it works? Yeah, people sit in a circle, and then if someone has a word from the Lord, they stand up and they and they say it. Um, and, and I asked these guys, I said, "So how's that? Does that does that still the way things are?" Oh no, no, no. We all have pastors. <laughs> um, do you see why? Because it's it's unavoidable that you'll eventually have that that leadership, um, and it in fact is is of course biblical. How does the New Testament teach you to view the church? The New Testament teaches me to view the church as God's covenant people and family, as the body and bride of Christ, and as the temple where God in Christ dwells by his spirit. Okay. The New Testament has a teaching on the nature of the church, and the church is first, um, God's covenant people. Okay. What does it mean to be God's covenant people? Yes. Uh, so a covenant, and, and I've used this definition before, so it's, uh, it may be new for some of you. A covenant is actually is not a legal contract in the best sense of the word. A covenant is actually an exchange of persons um, in which um, I bind you to me and you bind yourself to me as well. And in fact, the families come together. Um, so one way to imagine it uh, would be, this is a great biblical way to look at it. Uh, so... Let's say that, uh, oh, Jonathan. Jonathan, you got some great grazing land in the winter. And I, I can't feed my cows through a winter. So I, but I've got great grazing land in the summer, and yours is terrible in the summer. So what we say is, let's enter into a covenant together. Sound good? So we enter into this covenant, and basically we agree to, a, in a sense, a shared use agreement. But it's more than just a shared use agreement of land. In fact, we become family. Okay? Um, his daughters will presumably marry my sons, and likewise. Um, in addition to that, we make a sacrifice um, to seal the covenant. So the church is that body which has, been, uh, which has entered into an everlasting covenant with Christ by the blood of his sacrifice. Okay? So we become his body. Um, he in us, we in him. And family. As the body and bride of Christ. So here's another analogy. This, this, uh, this identity as the bride of Christ. Um, some people may, may ask, well, you know, why do you Christians care so much about marriage? Why does it matter so much to you? What people do. And so here's your answer, right? The prime biblical understanding of not only the church, but of the gospel is that of marriage. Um, the, the most visible way in which we can understand uh, the gospel. The most visible way in which we can understand the church is is through marriage. Okay. Um, well, let me use let me use an example. Have you ever noticed that older married couples start to look like each other? Have you ever noticed that? It's wonderful, right? I mean, it's great. Uh, sometimes it's better for him than her. And <laughs> um, but but the reality of it is that this just tends to happen. They tend, and not only that, but you know all the rest, they start to talk like each other. They start to have the same preferences. They start to drink the same stuff. They start to have the same meal. Um, I remember uh, someone told me about an older couple they knew. And they used to go to the same 
country club every Friday night for the same meal. They would order the same drink and the same thing, and they did this every Friday night for 50 years. And one day somebody just said, you know, why do you do that Friday after Friday after Friday? And they said, well... We like it, <laughs> you know. And besides, we're married, and we don't need that much variety, you know. Uh, everything, this this kind of stable life is really good for us. Uh, and and really, what it is, is that they become very similar. Um, and and that's a that's a wonderful way to look at it. Uh, we are being bound to Christ, and we are coming to take on His character. And as the temple where God in Christ dwells by his spirit. Now, of course, Jesus speaks of, uh, of his body, which will be raised up on the third day, as this, uh, how should I put it, as this cosmic temple, okay, uh, in which, well, what happens in a temple? Sacrifice happens in a temple. What else? Praise of God happens in a temple. Um, people make an offering in the temple. Uh, and, and Jesus speaks of his body as an everlasting temple. Um, and when we are incorporated into his body, what do we do as members of his body? We praise God. We make sacrifices. What's the sacrifice you offer this morning? It's your very body, right? Um, we offer, indeed, the, Euchar- the Eucharist is sacrificial. Okay? Now, that, does that mean that we're offering a sacrifice for sin? Not in that strict sense, but it does mean we're certainly sacrificing wine and bread and our praise and, and the worship which we offer. All of that is being sacrificed. Um, and, of course, you know, it really spend some time to look on the parallels between, uh, between, the sac- between sacrifice, as properly understood, and the Eucharist. Unbelievable parallels. Um, why is the church called the body of Christ? The church is called the body of Christ because all who belong to the church are united to Christ as their head and source of life and are united to one another in Christ for mutual love and service to him. Paul says some rather shocking things about marriage. Do you remember some of these things? Remember what happens? He talks a little bit about this. Um, You know, what happens when an an unbeliever is, is married to one who believes? Remember what he says about this? Well, he says, yeah, first of all, their children will be holy. And not only that, but the unbelieving spouse can actually be sanctified by the believing spouse because they're joined in one flesh. Um, And consider that for a moment. What are we as the church? Oh, we're all, you know, listen, if you, if you really want to understand the church, you know, understand her in these, in the sense of like, well, she's not, she's not glorious. <laughs> she can actually be a real pain sometimes, right? Uh, I, listen, I love the church, okay? But she has faults, okay? And, uh, and, and that is to say that she's being sanctified um, uh, by the love of her, of her beloved spouse, Jesus Christ. Um, we're united to one another in Christ for mutual love and service to him. What are the marks or characteristics of the church? The Nicene Creed expands on the Apostles' Creed to list four characteristics of the church. It is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Okay, so you'll note that in the Nicene Creed every Sunday we say this. I believe in one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. All right, we're going to go through those. Those are often called the four marks of the church. This is a, a great catechetical moment. Uh, and, and we see these, you know, question, where do we see these? Well, we see all this in Scripture, right? The church is absolutely one. 
The church is apostolic. Um, the church is Catholic. Um, and the church is holy. In what sense is the church one? The church is one because all its members form the one body of Christ, having one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. The church is called to express this unity in all relationships between believers. Um, Paul in Galatians uh, you know, speaks about the power of this baptism and says it is to the extent to which there is no longer male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Now, is he saying that there's no such thing as a slave anymore? Okay. Is he saying we've all just sort of become androgynous? Okay. Obviously not. I wish people would stop using that text to say that. <laughs> That's not what it is. It's to say that baptism imparts to us a, a united identity as God's church. Um, all one. Um, and that is to say that, uh, that the unity of the church um, does not, get this, the unity which the church has does not dispense with very real difference. Okay? Um, very real distinction. Okay? Um, but rather is, is, a, is an ontological unity um, very much like the Trinity. Right? Think about the Trinity. Are all the persons of the Trinity the same? No, that would be wrong, right? <laughs> the, the persons of the Trinity can be distinguished, yes? Okay. Well, persons in the church can be distinguished, right? Are we still one? Yes. Okay. So that's, that's, that's a really simple way of putting it. Um, Paul speaks about this unity, especially in Ephesians chapter 4, um, as one Lord, one faith, one baptism. He's calling the Ephesian church to, uh, to note their essential unity in Christ, um, and he uses several, several uh, wonderful phrases to get this across. Um, he speaks of, um, how about this? The gifts which Jesus Christ gives when he ascends and then descends. Right? So he is, he is imparting gifts to us. Um, and to whom do the gifts belong? I'm talking about gifts of the Spirit, by the way. Okay. Who do they belong to? They belong to the church, right? So, so here's, here's what Paul's hearing in his ears. Oh, well, uh, I have this gift and you don't. Nah, 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 boo, boo. And what's his, what's his response? No. Who said no? That was great. I love it. Uh, um, um, no, it, the, gifts, the gifts of the Spirit belong to all. They're held in common as a common trust. Okay? Um, another way he puts it. He speaks about uh, marriage in chapter 6, right? In chapter 5, he speaks about this, this way in which uh, Jesus washes his bride by the washing of water with the word, which is a reference to baptism, by the way, okay? that he might present her to himself, what? Pure and spotless, holy, with, you know, without any blemish, without any such uh, infirmity. Um, and this is to say that um, our, our, our unity comes by being washed and sealed. Okay. Um, okay, so there's that. Why is the church called holy? The church is holy because the Holy Spirit dwells in it and sanctifies its members, setting them apart to God in Christ and calling them to moral and spiritual holiness of life. Okay. Here's another mark. The church is indwelt by whom? Okay, the Holy Spirit, yes. Uh, let's, get that, let's get that one right. Because, you know, we speak a lot today about how, oh, you know, Jesus is living in his church. That's wonderful. But how does Jesus live in his church? By the Holy Spirit. 
Okay? So we want to say this regularly, that the Holy Spirit indwells every Christian and brings us together in that way. Um, the Holy Spirit dwells in the church, sanctifies its members. Um, what, do we mean by, what do we mean by this sanctification? What are we talking about when we talk about sanctification? What's that? Set. set apart. So that's the first sense in which we're talking about it. Sanctifies means set apart, right? So last week we, uh, we consecrated new silver for the altar, right? And how did we do it? Did we change it? I mean, I didn't take a hammer and I didn't get out my silversmithing materials and do things like, no, I didn't do that at all. Instead, we set it aside. And we said, this will only be used for sacred purposes from here on out. Okay? I'm not going to take the chalice home and drink beer out of it. Okay? I'm not going to drink, I'm not just going to kind of use it to have a drink of water. Right? It's set apart. Okay? Um, which, which is, you know, part of the reason, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell it to you this way. This is kind of a good analogy. Um, when I was uh, a young curate, um, the, the Boy Scouts used to use our church building, and they held a ceremony in the church, in the nave. And pictures got out that they had been doing some things, that they'd been doing these kind of ceremonies, and they'd not just been using the nave part, which was actually a problem too, but they'd actually been going up into the sanctuary and like sitting behind the altar and doing all these like Boy Scout ceremonies. The rector of the parish had a fit. And he called the scoutmaster, and he said, you are never allowed to use that building ever again. That building is set apart for the worship of the church, and that alone, period. Done. Right? Um, and, and I thought that was great. Right? Like, I remember, I'll never forget that moment. Because he was unafraid to confront this, this, this feeling like, well, you know, this could be used for sacred and other purposes. And it, no, it's set apart for that purpose and that purpose alone. Um, and, of course, this should, this should say some things, right, to us, not just about the building of the church, but about the church. Um, you know, and, and let me just say this. In, in in the best pastoral manner I can in the midst of this horrible election, um, people are using the church for idolatrous and untoward purposes, and it stinks. It's rotten. They're using the church to advance political agenda that have nothing to do with gospel at all. Okay? I'm done. <laughs> but do you see the problem there? Um, is that when we are sanctified and yet don't act like it, um, we, we've lost something very important. We've lost a very important witness. Okay? All right. Done. That's why, that's why I'll make this pledge to you. I will never, ever, 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 ever endorse a political candidate ever as a priest. I'll never tell you who I'm voting for. I will never tell you anything about that at all. Um, however, I, I do think it's a pastoral necessity to kind of say something about the nature of elections and what it means to be a citizen of the world and all those kinds of things. That's really important. But I'll never tell you who to vote for. Okay, so there you go. You got my promise. Um, why is the church called Catholic? The term Catholic means according to the whole. The church is called Catholic because it holds the whole faith once for all delivered to the saints and maintains continuity with the apostolic church throughout time and space. All right. So you'll note that um, we, 
we intentionally don't capitalize that word Catholic. Um, usually that's a, that's, a, that's a marker for Roman Catholic. It shouldn't be, but there it is. That's one way that it, that it can often be done. Uh, but it really means according to the whole. Um, and this word actually appears over and over and over again in the ancient church. Um, and one of the ways in which I think it's, it's often um, important to talk about it, and, and there's some controversy about this, but there was a, there was a church father by the name of uh, Vincent of Lorraine, and uh, he calls himself, uh, he calls himself the pilgrim, okay? And he calls himself the pilgrim because he, and this is middle of the, middle of the fourth century, or is it, no, middle of the fifth century. Um, he calls himself the pilgrim because he's gone around all throughout the Mediterranean and he's visited all kinds of churches. And he has this wonderful phrase in which he says, that is to be considered Catholic, which is held always, everywhere, and by all. Okay, meaning, always. Meaning that this has been held from the time of the apostles. Okay, so there's your first marker. Second, everywhere. Meaning that um, one particular local church can't claim to be Catholic for the rest of the church, right? Um, we can't just sort of say, uh, you know, we at Christ Church like to have a projector and a screen. Now, some of you don't. I know that. But some people like this, okay? And we do this Sunday after Sunday. And this is Catholic, friends. So if you don't have a screen, sorry, you're out. Did you see the problem? Okay. We can't also come up with some newfangled doctrine and say, well, that's Catholic too. And so you're not. And sort of stick out our tongues at you. Uh, can't do that. Okay, so that's everywhere. In fact, this is one of the ways in which the New Testament canon is solidified. Remember this? We were talking about this earlier in the scripture section. It's if every church in every place has this in the list of books that they read, what is it? It's considered Catholic and thereby part of the canon. So this is, this is really key. Okay, always, everywhere, and by all. By all simply means that... Um, that Everyone holds this. Everyone who considers themselves part of this Catholic Church holds this doctrine. Now, I realize, having gone through a Reformation 500 years ago and a number of other things, this has gotten very confused. Well, what is this? What is this Catholic faith? And um, as, a, as a diehard high church Anglican, I'm just going to continually tell you, go back to the old sources, right? Uh, you know, we can, we can know so much about the ancient church just by reading about it. Okay? Um, the other way that we can know this is that... Um, Without taking too far, you can you can you can apply this this sense of saying, well, you know, um, they teach that in that one little church in Texas. Well, that can't be that can't be it, right? As if God just sort of reveals the truth to one little church in Texas. Okay, um, so this is really about capturing a sense of of wholeness, right? Um, well, another way to put this word Catholic is universality to be universal. Why is the church called apostolic? An apostle is one who is sent. The church is called apostolic because we hold the faith of Christ's first apostles, because we are in continuity with them, and because we, like them, are sent by Christ to proclaim the gospel and to make disciples throughout the whole world. Okay. So here's the first sense of apostolic. The church is sent. So this word in Greek means uh, one who is sent, apostle, one who is sent. Um, now, I should say this really strongly. Is the message, is the content with which they are sent their own? No, not at all. Do they have the power to alter it? No. I mean, 
you know, we actually have a we have a law on that on the books. It's in federal law. You know what it is. If you if you send something through the mail and somebody takes it and opens it and alters your letter, do you know what that's called? It's called mail fraud. Uh, you'll go to a very nice federal prison for that, <laughs> and you should. Why? Because there's a there's a sacredness about the this the the. Uh, the written word especially, but, but everything else too, about it, about it being transmitted without alteration. Um, to have a society at all that's, that, that works, you have, to have these kinds of, you have to have these kinds of trust, right? I have to trust that when I open a, and, and you probably know this, right? You've opened some mail that is misleading, yeah? You've opened some, some uh, emails that are misleading, maybe from, I don't know, Nigeria perhaps? Uh, uh, you know, to have trust is really important. In fact, um, I was, I'm, I'm, you may know, I'll tell you, tell you this about me. I'm really into uh, um, espionage and spy tradecraft and stuff like that. I spend a lot of time reading spy novels when I get a chance, and I listen to the spy podcast all the time anyway. Uh, they were talking about what life was like in the, um, in the State Department in the 1930s and 40s. And the the... Secretary of State at one point had said, you know, gentlemen don't open each other's mail. That was the trust that was built up in the State Department. You know how the Russians started spying on the State Department? They opened other people's mail, right? Uh, it was that simple. They opened each other's mail, they took it down, they sent it on, and, and tons and tons and tons of intelligence was collected in exactly that way. Um, the reason I the reason I'm to say this strongly is there's there's a sort of, there's a sort of modern sense in which we say, well, you know, not everything's given, and so we can sort of change things to suit the times, right? I mean, the church has got to get with the times, right? Okay, you're confused. Good reason, right? No, no, yes, in certain ways, right? Right. Um, we don't do everything like the ancient church did, but in the substance of the apostolic faith, what's there? All of it. Okay. Um, one of the things that I, I want to remind you is that if, if, um, if an ancient Christian was uh, zapped into this church in a time machine, they probably know what was going on. Right? Is that a, is that a good sense of being apostolic? Even across languages? Yeah, I'd say Absolutely. Is it exactly like what they would have known? No, not at all. Um, but that's a, that's a way to understand apostolicity. Um, and, and I should say this, that's another, that's another kind of usage of it being uh, Catholic as well, which is that, um, you know, I've worshipped in churches around the world, right? Um, and I'm constantly amazed at the similarity. I'm blown away by the similarity. Liturgy can be in uh, Pashtun, it can be in Spanish, it can be in, uh, what was the most recent iteration of this? Uh, shoot, it can, be, it can be in Hebrew, it can be in all kinds of languages, and, it's, and it's, it works. Right? Um, and, and you know what's going on. All right, but let's go back to this, to this first meaning. The church is called apostolic because the church is sent. We hold the faith of Christ's first apostles. We are in continuity with them. And because like them, we are sent by Christ to proclaim the gospel and to make disciples throughout the whole world. Um, when Paul in Galatians answers the question, how can he claim to be an apostle? Do you remember what his answer is? It's two things. First, he says, 
Hey, the Lord appeared to me personally, okay? If you want better evidence than that, I can't give it to you. It's, that's, the best, that's the best evidence I can give you for my own status as an apostle. The Lord appeared to me personally. I, I witnessed the risen Christ as one untimely born, last of all, right? Um, this is actually 1 Corinthians as well. But, but then he says, I took the gospel up to the apostles, and what did they say? Well, they extended the right hand of fellowship to me because why? Why did they do that? Because it's the same gospel. They recognized it in the same way. Okay. Now, this, apostol- this, this apostolic nature is really important, and, and it's something which, um, which Paul had to claim against his, um, against his adversaries, which is that he held the apostolic faith, and they didn't. Um, and and he, he, uh, he leaned on this identity um, for the purposes of, 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 well, really, holding to this authenticity, right? Um, Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, let me put it to you this way. Um, This has a lot to do with missiology. It's essentially like, how do we reach people um, without altering the gospel, right? How do we we reach people without, without altering the faith? Um, do we have to use their language? Yes, right? You don't, listen, this isn't Islam. You don't have to teach people Arabic in order to give them the, the real faith, right? Um, we can translate, right? We have to translate. It's important that we translate. Um, is it important to avoid certain cultural bugaboos? Yeah, absolutely. It's important. Now, is it all important? Oh, by the way, this is a big struggle. Like in East Africa, it's a major struggle because there's this question of, you know, alcoholism is a serious problem, and Christians have looked down on alcohol in general. Um, and uh, by the way, there's a wonderful old acronym in the, in the Anglican Church in East Africa, which is uh, which is Fanta, which you know, Fanta is that soda that's often like grape and orange, and it says faithful Anglicans never take alcohol. <laughs> it's kind of a joke about things, but but. But yet, in the Eucharist, do they use wine? You bet they do, right? Do you see the, see the, see the issue there? It's to say, we're willing to change that. We're willing to make sure that, like, yeah, I mean, listen, the missionaries going to East Africa were perfectly fine with having a pint, okay? That wasn't the issue. But the people there, they knew they had to work a bit. They knew they had to do some things. Um, let me give you another example. Um, well, we know this from, from lots of mission contexts, right? Like, um, oh, great example. Um, we have a friend, uh, Jerry Kramer, who's a, uh, a missionary uh, throughout, the, throughout the world. I'll just put it that way. I don't want to give him away. Um, but, you know, he talks about the need to serve Muslim communities um, by being, how should I put this, really smart about how they make converts, right? They... For instance, well, the well, the um, well, everybody's gathered in worship in the in the mosque. They just have people that they're going to baptize. Basically, say, "Well, I'm sick today," and then they take them out to the ocean while no one's watching, and they baptize them there. Okay, they were doing this for years in Zanzibar, um, and and then do you know what? They go back to the mosque. Why do they go back to the mosque? To pray in the mosque. 
right? And, and this, is, this is totally normal in that world. Um, and we think, well, how can they really be Christians if they're going to the mosque? What are your options? Right, so you have to be dynamic about that. Are they, but here's the, here's the point where you press them. You say, Jerry, are they receiving the same faith? And he'll say, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right, they're, being, they're, being, uh, they're being taught with a, with a level of rigor that goes beyond anything that any American church would have at all. Okay? So do you see the, do you see the, the distinction there? It's that um, we, we should expect, right, Here's what we should expect. We should expect that the faith which is being transmitted throughout the globe is the same one, translated for sure. Now, the modes and practices in varying ways are going to change, right? A lot of them will. A lot of them won't. So go ahead. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, well, so here's your first here's your first point. What do we how do we approach same-sex marriage? Or whatever it's called? Well, I'd hope we'd address it from scripture, right? Is the apostolic faith contained in the New Testament? You bet. Okay? So there's your first there's your first marker. So that's that's the first thing, okay? Of course, the other part is too. I mean, did we receive any other faith? Has the church ever had another faith on that matter? No. Um, so so it's, it's, it fails several tests. And I think that's the really important point to say is that um, now. I'll give you another example that's a, little, that's a little closer, okay? And it's that of polygamy, okay? So polygamy is still technically speaking marriage, Okay. But what's, what are the regulations that we actually have regulations about this? So Anglican missionaries going out into the going out in the mission field, they actually have a way to deal with this, and the way to deal with it is to tell this husband who has many wives, right, um, that he is to as much as possible care for all of them, while remaining sexually faithful to one of them, the first one. Now, is that a hard deal? Yes, but that's the apostolic faith. Right? So it requires that that be how we engage with people in, the, in that mission context. Um, that's a really tough call, right? But there it is. Um, care, and he's got to care for all the children. He's got to take, take care of everybody. Um, and in fact, the later wives, this is part of it too, the later wives, if they want to leave, they can. It's usually allowed. Um, but you see, that's a really tough call. But for the purposes of maintaining the faith in in widely different cultures, it has to be done. Um, I think that's a really, that's a really important, I'm glad you asked that question. It's to say that um, when it comes to innovation of any kind, it's not a free-for-all, right? And here's part of the problem, with, I think, with modern, modern culture, really, in general, and that's, that's influenced the church, is that we've become highly pragmatic and highly utilitarian. So we say, oh, if we can just change this and more people will come, then it'll be great. Right? Say, why wouldn't we do that? Well, listen, if, if, the, sole, if the sole determining factor of orthodoxy was how, many, how big a crowd you could draw, well, I mean, I'd have a Learjet, okay? Uh, so, so there it is. I hope I would. I don't know. <laughs> um, so let's, let's, keep, let's keep at it. The communion of saints. Any more questions before we keep going? I think this is this is a good conversation to have. 
Right, not at all. Yeah. So there's this idea he was making reference to called, called uh, adiaphora. It's this idea that there are things which are, um, which are essentially uh, indifferent, right? Um, and in fact, in Anglicanism, we actually have these kind of categories built up so that, so that built into, uh, well, put it, put it this way, built into how we interpret Scripture are these categories, right? So if Scripture speaks to a matter clearly, is it adiaphora at all? Can it be? No, it can't be. However, if Scripture seems to say two things at the same time, can it be adiaphora? Perhaps. Perhaps. If Scripture says nothing about it, can it be adiaphora? Maybe, right? Maybe. But it's a tough test, right? Um, and I think that's really key. I mean, again, the Anglican position on Scripture is that Scripture contains all things necessary to salvation. Okay? Now, does that mean that we can't identify various doctrines that we ought to teach anyway? No, not at all. Um, and I think that's, that's a really important key, key feature built into Anglicanism. Um, that, that, well, I should put it this way, that is extremely helpful. Um, and uh, so I, th- I think we've, we've got we've to stick to that. It's an essential thing. Go ahead. That's, that's another way to look at it, probably. Yeah. It's, it's generally right. However, um, Yeah, I'm gonna have to think about that. That's that's a really um, I would just put it this way, the the bar is pretty high for what's adiaphora and what's not. Higher than in many other ways of thinking about it. Um, because here's here's one way that adiaphora will be expressed today. And you've probably heard this before. Well, you know, it's not, thank, thank goodness it's not a salvation issue. That's not, that's not the bar for adiaphora, okay? It's, it's not, this is, this is a salvation issue or not. I mean, for us, the first level is, is this biblical? Does it pass the biblical test? Um, secondly, does it pass that, that, that test of universality, right? Um, and I think that's really important as well. So, so there are lots of practices which eke in that become almost universal. And by the way, people say, well, you can't really be a, you can't be a serious Christian and believe that. And like believing in the presence of Christ in the Eucharist, for instance, right? Universal in the church until seriously, and I say this strongly, the 16th century. Universal. Okay. And that's based in a very simple interpretation of Scripture, right? So would I say that's adiaphora? Not on your life. It's not. It matters immensely. Okay? Um, and that's why people are often surprised. They're like, well, you seem to have a very high bar for who should receive. And I said, absolutely. Because we take it very seriously. Right? Now, that's not to say, on the other hand, that's not to say, and I say this rather strongly, that's not to say you're not a Christian if you don't believe that. Um, um, that's not to say that at all. It's to say, though, that for us, that is not an indifferent thing as a church. Go ahead. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's that's just another way to that's another good way to put it. Um, yeah, but let's move on. I want to want to say a little bit about the communion of saints before we break. How's that? All right. Who are the saints? The saints are all those in heaven and on earth who have faith in Christ, are set apart to God in Christ, and are made holy by His grace and live faithfully in Him and for Him. Does that include the dead? Absolutely. Uh, the communion of saints is both those in heaven and on earth who have faith in Christ, are set apart to God in Christ, uh, are made holy by his grace, and live faithfully in him and for him. Um, in fact, there's a really interesting uh, linguistic problem that, when it comes to the Apostles' Creed and what the Apostles' Creed says about the communion of saints. The, the phrase there could be taken to mean um, the communion of those who had been made holy. Okay? Um, the communion of the saints, right? People. It can also mean, I think this is a perfectly good interpretation as well, it can also mean uh, those who participate in the communion of holy things, of holiness, which includes, so, so I, would, I would say this, there's a dual meaning, right? First part of the meaning is um, holy people. The other thing is holy things, right? So those who participate in holy things. And that could be the church's worship, that could be the sacraments, etc. What does the word communion mean? The word communion means being one with someone else in union and unity. Christians use it to refer to the relationship of the three persons within the one being of God, to our unity with all three persons, to our union with Christ, and to our relationship with one another in Christ. All right, so we'll break that down a little bit. By the way, the, the Greek word for this, and, and I'll occasionally use this in preaching and others will too, is koinonia, which, which refers to being as one. Um, and this is a major word for Christians. Remember, I mean, this word appears over and over again. Um, well, think about First John. Uh, our fellowship is with whom? The Father and the Son. Right? Um, oh, Paul, First Corinthians chapter 10. The bread which we break, is it not a koinonia in the body of Christ? Okay, see how that word works? There's this, there's this idea of... of communion with God in Christ. Um, and, and indeed to the point where this reference to the Trinity is not just sort of like a distraction, right? The understanding is that we have been made partakers of the, of the divine economy, which is, which is the Trinity. Um, this is a really important point. And we refer this, we, we speak about the relationship between the persons of the Trinity as a communion, and we also speak to our union with the three persons of the Trinity through our union with Christ. And I should also say, through our union with Christ, which is affected by the Holy Spirit, okay? um, and to our relationship with one another in Christ. All right. What is the communion of saints? The communion of saints is the unity and fellowship of those, those who are united in one body and one spirit in holy baptism, both those on earth and those in heaven. All right. So here's where we get some difficulty, and I want to lay it out to you. Does that mean that all who are baptized are part of the communion of saints? Yes. <laughs> Bingo, you got it. Okay. Uh, now, but what about people who clearly aren't, like, clearly aren't intentionally strong Christians? Are they still a part of the communion of saints? Yes. Because you know what they'd have to do in order to come back into the communion of saints? Well, they, don't, they can't come back into the communion of saints because they're already in it. Okay. Would they be rebaptized? No. What would they do? Yeah, repent. So, so why is that not true for you and me? 
right? So this is to say that uh, all who are baptized are part of the communion of saints. This is really important, really key. Now, does that mean that all will be saved who are in the communion of saints? No, not at all. But it is to say that if you're baptized, you're part of the communion of saints. Because you, you are a partaker of that communion which exists. Um, and this is to say that that's a rather interesting distinction. Uh, it's a very important distinction, of course. Um, and and it, the way a lot of American Christians will put it, and by the way, those who deny that um, anything really truly happens in baptism, um, will simply say, well, you know, that's all, you know, that's, that's all great, but it doesn't matter to us because we don't really believe that anything actually happens there. And, and what do we say? Well, it absolutely happens there. Okay, we're going to say more about the sacraments in the coming week. I want to preface it just a little bit. Um, but, but that is to say that um, you, you, it's just really difficult, and this is what I want to say here. It's just very difficult to get around the biblical witness to what happens when you're baptized. Um, it either happens for everybody or it happens for precisely nobody. And I think we as Anglicans say with the church throughout the centuries, it happens for everybody. Why? Because it de- doesn't depend on us. The grace is not dependent upon our disposition. Okay? Now, I put, put a caveat on that. If you're faking it, you're on tough water, right? But this is to say very strongly, I think, um, and of course, this is why I don't want to chase rabbit holes today. We're not doing that. But, you know, again, this is why um, we baptize infants. We want them to be members of the communion of saints throughout their lives so that when they are able to make it their own, and, they, and, they, and that's not a one-time deal, it's a process, right? Um, they're able to take on all of this as their own, and it's a wonderful thing. Um, but that is how it happens, through holy baptism. You become a member of the communion of saints. How is the communion of saints practiced? It is practiced by mutual love, care, and service, and by worshiping together where the word of the gospel is preached and the sacraments of the gospel are administered. Okay? So the, the identity of the communion of saints is found in, in this uh, pro- proclamation of the gospel, in, the, in baptism, and in the... In the uh, in the sacrament, especially the Eucharist as well. Um, and that's, that's really key. Emily, what's your question? What are you talking, so the ambiguity about the what? Ah, yes. (laughs) Okay, I'll bite. Um, So, uh, again, the communion of saints is both the living and the dead, right? Is that correct? And which ones in particular? Those who've been baptized. Okay. Now, is this to say that that is the elect? You've got to be really clear. No, not at all. Now, you can think about it like a Venn diagram, right? <laughs> um, but, but the most helpful thing to say would be that we, sh- we, should, we should say, we should say this strongly. I think this is really key. We should say we use that word faithful departed, in, especially in Anglicanism, because it's, it's a key term. It means that you die in the communion of the church, and you die with the faith professed on your lips. Is that important? Absolutely. Okay. So that's, what, that's a very technical term that we're using there. 
um, where meaning didn't, you know, die, uh, how's this, um, didn't die uh, professing Buddhism, that's not faithful departed, okay? Didn't die having said, well, I haven't been to church in 30 years, okay? That's not what we're talking about. So that's, Emily, that's a really clear, that's a really important distinction. So last night, uh, a member of our congregation uh, passed away, and she died having been visited by two priests. She, had, she died having professed the creed. She died a wonderful holy death in her bed at home, right? Um, heart failure at 97 years old. Is she a member of the faithful departed? Yes. Okay, absolutely. Am I getting at the question, Emily? Okay, so so that's to say that um, that it's it's a it's a really key term because we can never presume to say who's elect and who's not, right? Can we do that? No, right? And the articles are clear; we can't do that. Okay? But what we can do is we can say you died in the communion of the church, and we can say you are in the communion of the church, right? You're baptized; you profess the faith. Do you, see the, do you see the distinction there? I think it's an absolutely critical and important distinction. It, it, that should lead us to not constantly be suspicious of each other. Does that make sense? Have you ever heard that? Oh, I don't know. He might not be a real Christian. Don't ever say that, by the way. Please don't say that. So, you know, I wish that he would repent on this. I, I wish that he would, and I, I pray for him in that. But stop judging those inside the church, right? That's God's job. What we can make pronouncements about, and what we absolutely should make pronouncements about is, is are you a member of the communion of saints, right? And we should do that. We absolutely should do that. Okay, I'm going to finish it up. How are the church on earth and the church in heaven joined? All the worship of the church on earth is a participating in the eternal worship of the church in heaven. Yay, all right? (laughs) You know, Listen, in the middle of the Eucharist, we're going we're gonna to sing, right? We're going to say this. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. Right? Who sings that song in Scripture? Isaiah chapter 6. You know, the throne room vision, right? The seraphim. And they teach us to sing it. Why? Because we participate in their worship. And someday we will participate in it forever. That's a great joy, right? There's a church in town, I won't name it, but uh, they're off Elm and I love it. On their, on their sign, instead of saying worship is at 10 o'clock, they say the throne room experience is at 11 a.m., right? I'm going to start putting that on our sign. Uh, because they're getting at the heart of Christian worship, are they not? You're saying that to worship God is to enter into uh, where he is. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's at the heart of Christian worship. It's deeply, and I want to say this finally, Christian worship is deeply and, and, and um, irrefutably sacramental. Right? The, the invisible becomes visible in Christian worship. Right? Um, and it's not a parody. It's not some sort of cheap imitation. It is the thing itself. Okay. That's all I got for today. Thank you.